I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swell'st thou then? One short sleep past we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Instead of our usual opening, that poem by John Donne sets the tone for this edition of our programme. The month of November, known as Me Namorov in Irish, is the month when we traditionally remember those who have passed on. And as we're now at the middle of that month, this week we focus on the subject of death. There are often things that we wish we had said to those who have died, and more often there are things we would like to say in the event of our own deaths. This is something that the author, the Reverend Chris Russell, Vicar of St. Lawrence in Reading, addressed in his book To Be Delivered in the Event of My Death, Ten Letters, and from the studios of 210FM in Reading, he joins us now. Chris, why did you decide to write these letters? I decided to write them because... Every every year on my birthday, I assume that it's going to be the last year of my life. Now, in thinking about writing, I thought, well, OK, if I want to write 10 letters to 10 people, like a legacy to them, OK, here's something I really want to say to you on these particular themes. So, How did you choose your people? Some of them are close friends. Some of yeah, them, like your famous Christian man, you obviously yeah. don't know at all. This book has been cooking for years. And so when I was thinking about faith, I thought about three years ago, and I was, OK, here's things about faith. And I had a talk with a publish, uh, with an editor, and he said, OK, you've got, this, you've got this stuff to say about faith. Who are you saying it to? I said, oh, well, it's clear. I'm saying it to this guy who once said this at a prayer meeting. And so what I realised was the things that I was wanting to say about church and faith and uh, living an integrated life and suffering and identity and and worship were all addressed to people. It was all because of circumstances and people I've known and people I've met. And so the people were really easy to find. Six people have real names. Three names are changed. And, and one person is, as you say, to a famous Christian man. is to a kind of generic kind of person. OK, well, let's come to the faith one then first. And that yeah. was Eddie that, that you yeah. say you, you met at a prayer meeting and he yeah. was talking about his father being ill. Yeah, he was. So Eddie was leading this prayer meeting this week and he said, Jesus in the Gospels is always disappointed with people's faith and I think he's disappointed with my faith because my my father's just gone into a hospice and he's been given a few weeks to live and I think faith calls me and challenges me to go to my father and to tell him he's going to be healed. And I remember just thinking, I, I just don't think that's what faith is. Because I, I think faith isn't just about willing myself to believe unbelievable things in the face of medical evidence. 
So Eddie's father died. Uh, did he die because Eddie didn't have faith? No, Th that wasn't it. it. Faith isn't some magic ingredient which, when you put into a normal equation, can bring you a different result out. Uh, and so I looked at the story of Peter walking on the water, uh, and and it, I think the story only makes sense when actually, actually faith would have meant for Peter staying in the boat, trusting Jesus. Uh, and so I take the line that faith is about trust. And you think that fear is the greatest challenge to that trust? Yeah, I do think fear is. I think fear is almost uh, like at epidemic levels in our lives. If faith is about trust, I think trust then has to counter fear. That brings us on then to belonging. And you say there should be no such thing as a churchless Christianity. And this was addressed to your aunt. Antonia is um, just the world's greatest auntie. She is. Uh, she treats my girls all the time. Um, she came, uh, and I remember it was uh, in June. She arrived at our house. I, I told her there was a chapter in the book to her. She hadn't read it. None of the people had read their chapters before they were published. So she she closed it, closed the book after reading it. And she said, "You, you really think I need to be part of a church, don't you?" And I said, "Yes." Antonio, I do, and, I, and I've said it before, and I'll keep saying it. I, I think you do. I don't think Christianity is just an individualistic thing. I don't think it's something that you just have an option of opting out of uh, being with the other people who, who call themselves followers of Jesus. Uh, in fact, I think it only makes sense, faith only makes sense in, in a corporate context. I'm aware that for people who've been out of church for ages, it's just so hard to get back in. You know, there's so, you know, would you return to the community that you were once part of? And you've got all the, you know, the embarrassment around that. But I, I kind of, in that, I'm like, it, it's not an optional extra to, to the Christian life. This is an essential part. Christianity is essentially a corporate faith. I love that idea of, you know, in, in three weeks' time, on Advent Sunday, the Christian year starts. We don't start on the. We don't date things from the first of January. We date things from the first Sunday in Advent, and then we we start with hope. We 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 start looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. We we look forward to to history being wrapped up by Jesus Christ and and his and God's life in its fullness, his kingdom in its fullness, beginning and end. I love the fact that each year I have to face suffering in Holy Week. Each year. I think of the disciplines of Lent. Um, I, I, I go through things which are good for me to go to. Uh, I, I th each year I think about the hope of the resurrection. Each year um, I think of the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And, and there's a, those other, th so there's kind of feasting and fasting. And it, it feels like it's a really healthy pattern for living. And it makes me live not in my time, just addressing the things that. I'm going through or the things that I'm facing or my preoccupation with myself uh, it, it's t kind of taken away from me and it says come on live live this story this is your, your legacy live it live it and I think the Christian year affords all of us that that gift really now that brings us on to the letter that you addressed to Tommy your one-year-old nephew who died yeah. in a tragic accident now you say in the introduction to that that a psychologist recommended that you write a letter to him and I wondered if that influenced you then in the whole letter writing thing apart from just Tommy yeah it did really that's that's a really good point I I believe that the gospel is intensely personal in it, I believe that Christianity isn't just a, a set of doctrines which are on a, a stone in a church or it's not just a, a creedal 
ascent. It, it, these are the this is the word of God addressed to individual lives, particular people. It, it, God's word always takes flesh, and so that the the advice of uh, Kathy, who's a friend of mine, who's a psychologist of of writing to Tommy, probably did influence. And this was the hardest one. Uh, this was the one that felt that it was most personal. And with um, it, you were trying to help other people affected by loss. Yeah, in it, I was hoping to to help other people with loss. I mean, in some ways, well, this is the thing that we've all got in common. We've all got suffering in common. And if we haven't now, we will have that. Um, and and it, it, it struck... I mean, that some of those words were words that I formulated. We had a... T Tommy died when a lamppost fell on his head um, in February 2010. It was just a freak accident, um, a, a horrendous a horrendous event of which reveals a contingency of our lives and um and the family his body wasn't released for um a couple of months so his parents wanted to have a, a memorial service for him and so uh, some of the words or things i spoke in at his funeral and some of those things were things that i said to tommy he was in intensive care for 3 days um kept alive on a life support machine he but he'd been brain damaged the moment the on impact when this huge lamppost fell on his head and i remember we i sat with him and i spoke to him and and i and we prayed and we we wandered and 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 i and some of the things i write in the letter are things that i said to him then as well i i think you know the gospel has got something to say to me and to his parents and to everybody involved with suffering. The gospel has particular words to those people, words, I think, which are words of hope, um, which aren't words of explanation that this, is, this has happened because of this. Of course not. And anything, anything that's an easy explanation for suffering is blasphemy, I think. I think there's so much that the Christian faith, so many resources for, in the Christian faith for those who suffer. Finally, I have to ask you, did you have any adverse reaction from any of the people that you wrote to? Do you know, I'm amazed. Each person who I've written to has said, goodness, it, it's quite, it feels quite vulnerable having a letter addressed to me and everybody else hearing what you'd say to me. Um, but I guess it goes back to this drive that I have that God's word to us is always personal. He's always saying particular things to us. The gospel is about real life, about true life. It's about where I live. It's about who I relate to. It's about who I speak to. It's about who I'm arguing with. And it's about um, the very way I love people. And so in that way, I'm like, I'm committed to this. I'm committed to, to being part of a community where we allow God to speak his personal word to personal lives. Well, Chris Russell, thank you for sharing all that with us. The book is called To Be Delivered in the Event of My Death, Ten Letters, and it's published by Darton, Longman and Todd. Thank you very much. Another book which came our way recently and which we'd recommend to anyone who might be going through a bereavement is Love Lives On, written by Teresa Maloney and published by Veritas. And we'll put the information about both those books on our website. And death shall have no dominion. 
Dead men naked, they shall be one with the man in the wind and the west moon. When their bones are picked clean and the clean bones gone, they shall have stars at elbow and foot. Though they go mad, they shall be sane. Though they sink through the sea, they shall rise again. Though lovers be lost, love shall not. And death shall have no dominion. And death shall have no dominion. Under the windings of the sea, they lying long shall not die windily. Twisting on racks when sinews give way, strapped to a wheel, yet they shall not break. Faith in their hands shall snap in two, and the unicorn evils run them through. Split all ends up, they shan't crack. And death shall have no dominion. And death shall have no dominion. No more may gulls cry at their ears, or waves break loud on the seashores. Where blue a flower, may a flower no more lift its head to the blows of the rain. Though they be mad and dead as nails, heads of the characters hammer through daisies, break in the sun till the sun breaks down. And death shall have no dominion. And Death Shall Have No Dominion by Dylan Thomas. Lord, the dead suffered the pain and the loss of human life. Give them the fullness of life and the joy of heaven. Lord, hear us. Let us not forget to pray for all those who are affected by the loss of one they loved, all the people of our parish who are grieving and who have a loved one buried here. May God console them in their grief. Lord, hear us. Almighty and everlasting God, Lord of the living and the dead, you show mercy to all whom you call to be yours through faith and good works. We pray for all who are here in this, buried here in this cemetery of your kind mercy and through the prayers of all your saints forgive them all their offences we ask this through Christ our Lord That traditional blessing of the graves in Listole Parish Graveyard took place earlier this month but there was a time when certain people weren't deemed to be entitled to a Christian burial and their last resting places were known as Kilini or Kalunacha. Rona Tarrant investigated one of our harsher traditions and began by talking to broadcaster and national treasure Michal Omwirahertig. I remember this young brother of mine, he died, and I remember really seeing him in a little cot. I remember putting my hand on his face as I was passing. I didn't know whether I was supposed to do it or not, but I didn't. I thought it was the coldest thing that I ever felt. Now that's, and then I remember he being buried in, a, there's a, a lovely ancient fort. goes away, way back. There are home stones there that'll tell you how old it is. Maybe the young sons were brought there at some stage, but he was buried within the walls of that. Tony Maguire is an archaeologist who founded the Hog Alliance and has done a lot of work in Kalini. A, a Kalin basically is any area of unconsecrated ground which is used for the burial of infants or indeed adults. Um, now, these individuals buried in this way are buried that way because it's either down to their spiritual status at the time of burial 
such as an unbaptized baby or a mother who dies in childbirth, or the nature of their death, um, such as someone who has been drowned or, um, say, someone, a vagrant passing through an area who dies. Um, they're not prepared to bury these particular individuals uh, with the great and the good basically. Um, and I have sort of turned them, they're almost seen by the communities as the dangerous dead, because if they're not buried in consecrated ground with all full ceremony, there is always this fear attached to them, you know. There was great emphasis on heaven, hell, purgatory, but only a little about limbo. It wasn't mentioned as often as the other to sort of pushed aside, but we all knew about Limbo, that was a place of rest for the unbaptized. Limbo is this kind of intermediate other world, a, a place of no status uh, for the baby's soul, and where, uh, unfortunately, the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic belief was that um, these, child, these children would be destined to be forever in this. So that meant really that, as well as the loss of the baby, the life, the new life um, in this world... People believed that the soul of the child was lost in the next world. Anne O'Connor, folklorist. But I always thought it was strange. The most innocent of all, the people that die at birth, they couldn't be guilty of any sin, but they had this thing, original sin. Some of the sites that I did identify, when I actually went looking for them um, in the landscape, I would find that the sites would have been destroyed and maybe a housing estate would be there instead. And that was really sad because people would say, well, yes, we knew there was a, a baby, baby's burial ground in this location. And and I think there was always that secrecy surrounding Cluny. You know, people were a little bit um, wary about talking about it. It wasn't a topic that was particularly talked about openly. Um, and it wasn't until I sort of broached the subject and that people started coming forward with lots and lots more information and, I have to say, personal stories in relation to infant burial at these sites that the floodgates literally just opened. Veronica had this story to tell. In March 1960, I gave birth to twin girls in a matter hospital. And the day... They were alive when they were born and the nuns gave them a private baptism. And then they died. And then when I woke up the next morning, my mo- my mommy said to me, my mother, she said, they wouldn't have her see them. And I didn't see them. But in the meantime, they had put them in a box, taped it up and gave them to my husband and told them to take them up to Milltown Cemetery and hand them in at the gatehouse. Well, my husband did that, and the man in the office said, don't be worrying, I'm bringing them down now to bury them in the baby graveyard. And there was no baby graveyard. I never found them till I got to Tony, got in touch with me, and she found them, and that was in 1960. Once again, Tony Maguire. What we did find was that our landscape is, is almost peppered by these little burial grounds. And it only takes one burial, one baby there, for it to be classed as a, as a clean, basically. I spoke to one lady, for instance, um, who had said that when she had three babies who had died over um, a few years, she was she was really worried about this aspect of assigning them to unmarked burial grounds 
in in the wild somewhere which she when she got older she couldn't get there to see them or visit the graves so she actually had her husband construct a little sort of chamber like a, a stone lined chamber which straddled her back door and the babies were put in little caskets and all buried in that way um, and there is that issue about inclusion and exclusion. I mean, the, the individuals buried in this way are very much marginalised. The graves are not marked, but people no, note the sites in the landscape. You know, they will associate it with a fairy tree or a standing stone or a holy well or some other archaeological feature within the landscape. And in that way, the site is then easily identified at a future date and people can go back. Anne O'Connor. In Connemara, for instance, and in Mayo, and even in Belfast, uh, in the in the uh, graveyard there, a lot of work for people who are going back and ill on the morrow, people going back, reclaiming it, asking priests now to bless those places, to consecrate them, so that uh, those children are no longer in these formerly unconsecrated graveyards. I think the the definition of these Killini or Kalonic, going away back before Vatican II was, it was a resting place for those that didn't qualify to be buried in consecrated ground. And uh, people that committed suicide in the old days were buried in places like that. They weren't considered suitable for burying for burial in consecrated ground either. And there might have been other categories as well, but uh, there have been consecrated some of them since then. Uh, there was no order to the local church to consecrate them, but on request they can be consecrated. And I think it's been done quite a lot all over the country. There's a fairly large one, as you'd expect, up in Glasnevin Cemetery. But it's not within the cemetery. It's on the other side of the road, even. There was a little a plot. Now, a plot that got bigger with the years. And in Dublin, they used to call it, I think, the Angel's Plot. Once again, Tony Maguire. The Hug Alliance, which was hidden in unconsecrated ground, really was a coming together of a number of academics and um, people who would, historians, etc., people who would have an interest in this type of um, situation. And we wanted to very much highlight the fate of these burial grounds and allow, um, how should we say, an avenue for relatives and parents and siblings of babies who'd been buried in similar sites to come forward with their personal stories and to see what we could do about identifying um, and recording as many of these sites as possible. And we leave the final word to Mihalamar Hartig. And I was saying to myself, now where are, we, where are we be for the coming of the millennium, the sunrise, 1st of January, the year 2000? And I said it would be a lovely place to be within that fort. You know, it's neatly kept always, a stone wall around it, well kept and well kept internally as well. I said that would be a lovely place because it's in a high piece of ground and you could see then when the sun had come over the hill in the distance and see the dawn coming. So that's where we, that's where we welcome the new millennium. People always thought, you know, Talib Banaha, that's what they called it in Irish, where they were about Talib Banaha, blessed place. And I thought it was a great place to its part of this world. God only knows how long it is there. And also, in a way, seeing that the life of my brother were buried there, that would be, uh, you know, belonging to this life and the other life.
That report was by Rona Tarrant and that's almost our programme for this week. As always, your comments are welcome. You can email us at godslot at rte.ie, phone us at 01208 or write to The Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. We'll be back next Friday evening at the same time with our more usual style of programme. But for now, dedicated to anyone who might be affected by any of the issues we've discussed tonight, we take our leave of you with these words of hope from the Irish poet Derek Mahan. How should I not be glad to contemplate the clouds clearing beyond the dormer window and a high tide reflected on the ceiling? There will be dying. There will be dying. But there is no need to go into that. The poems flow from the hand unbidden, and the hidden source is the watchful heart. The sun rises in spite of everything, and the far cities are beautiful and bright. I lie here in a riot of sunlight, watching the day break and the clouds flying. Everything is going to be all right.